There are some people that when they get saved, it is just an absolute mind blower. You don't expect them to come to know the Lord. You see someone who lives a radical life opposing Christ, and when they get saved, it just makes you shake your head. When I went several years ago now to my high school reunion, 10-year high school reunion, I was a little bit apprehensive at what I would find. They certainly did not know I'd become a Christian, and I wanted to see who else had. And there were a few people, one in particular, a guy that used to beat up everybody on campus. John Booth, big old guy. And he came up to me and he started walking toward me. I thought, oh no, I did something wrong. He's going to beat me up now. But instead, he told me he'd become a Christian. I couldn't believe it. Equally as mind-blowing was when I told other friends of mine that I'd become a Christian. I told one girl that I was a Christian and a pastor of a church, and it seemed for a half an hour she just said, I don't believe it. I, I, I don't believe it. Now sometimes those radical conversions are when a person does a complete 180. When they were heathens, they were good heathens. And they went for broke being a heathen. I mean, they were antagonistic. They weren't moderate. They were just radical pagans. And to see some of them get changed and then become radical lovers of Jesus is wonderful. The Bible says, Jesus said, to whom much has been forgiven, the same loves much. When you know how filthy you were and the paganism you were in, when you don't lie to yourself and you come to grips with the change God has made, it often puts a fervor in your heart to serve the Lord with greater intensity. Now, Paul the Apostle was like that. He was a full-on antagonist of the early church. He hated them. Although he was religious, he wasn't a Christian. And whatever Paul did, he was never moderate. He was always radical. He never just sort of did it. He just didn't do something halfway. When he persecuted the church, he persecuted the church. He just didn't say a few foul words at them. He killed them. When he became a Christian, he was no less radical. Not a moderate. Not a Christian on weekends. He didn't wear the gospel on his shirt sleeve. He was a full, radical disciple, and he never quit. In fact, we're going to look tonight at what happened here in Acts chapter 9, and 30 years after this event, when he wrote about this event, and still, how much he was following the Lord. You know, I've noticed that not a lot of people get along with radicals. Many people like the moderate position, and they don't like a fanatic as they call it. Of course, you've heard the definition that a fanatic is simply someone who loves Jesus more than you do. And that's scary, isn't it? Paul was intensely in love with Jesus, the one whom he persecuted and hated and put people into prison in his name, for his name. Now he's a lover of Christianity. And the early church didn't get used to this guy at first. In fact, when he went to Jerusalem after his conversion sometime later, the church wouldn't join themselves to Paul because they knew his reputation. It'd sort of be like if Saddam Hussein came into our church tonight and sat down. You'd think, 
I'm suspect here. I don't know if this is really, what has he got up his sleeve? Or if Madeline Murray O'Hare came in and decided, I'm going to follow Christ. It would cause some of us to be very leery as to what was going on. And it caused no less problems in the early church when Paul or Saul of Tarsus became a disciple of Jesus Christ. But I love what Jesus said to the church of Laodicea, and I think it applies in this case to us. He said, I know your works, that you are neither hot nor cold, but I wish that you were hot or cold. But because you are lukewarm, I will spew you out of my mouth. It was John Wesley, the great revivalist, who said, I like my religion like my tea. I want it hot. Jesus wants it hot. He wants us to be honest. If you're cold, be cold. But if you're hot, be red hot. The greatest event after the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost is this event in chapter 9. Because this man, Saul of Tarsus, becomes what is known as the Apostle to the Gentiles. And through him, the Holy Spirit uses him to take the gospel to the center of the Roman Empire and eventually to all of the known world itself through this catalyst. Yet, God had to humble him first. First we see Saul on the road, and next we see Saul flat on his back, listening to the Lord. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said. Paul was a great man, and I have no doubt that on the way to Damascus he rode a very high horse. But a few seconds sufficed to alter that man. How soon God brought him down. Every time I read of a conversion story, I'm always excited. I don't care if it's Paul the Apostle or if it's someone who wasn't a radical, someone who was raised in a Christian home and has stayed true to the Lord. Whenever I see a conversion, I get excited. I never get tired of seeing a person come to know the Lord. We see people come for counseling during the week. Many of them come for counseling who aren't Christians. It's exciting because we get to lead them to the Lord. And we never get tired of that. We never say, you know what, I'd like to lead you to the Lord, but it's five o'clock, we want to get home. We're tired. Get saved tomorrow. It's always exciting. This last weekend I was out in Southern California and spoke at a few meetings, and the night meetings every night when we had an altar call, the entire front room of the church and part of the aisle was filled with people giving their life to Christ. I never get tired of seeing that. It's always exciting. It's always exciting when a person surrenders to Jesus Christ. And perhaps some of you tonight are in a boat like Saul of Tarsus. Religious and very strong about your religion, but not yet apprehended by Jesus Christ. And perhaps tonight you'll make a decision for Christ. That's something we pray for. In the first couple of verses, notice his callousness before he was saved. It says, and Saul, still breathing threats, and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, and he asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, interesting designation for the early church, whether men or women, he wasn't prejudiced, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. In Damascus there was a large Jewish population, between 20 and 30 synagogues, and many believers, Jewish believers, had already gone to Damascus fleeing the persecution in Jerusalem. 
When Saul of Tarsus found that out, he was afraid that this Christianity would take off and spread from Jerusalem and go elsewhere. So he thought, I've got to stop it. Now he was Mr. All-Time Non-Believing Radical Persecutor. He thought that what he was doing, he was doing a favor for God. I've got to kill Christians. That's God's will. Because he saw Christianity as a threat to Judaism. These Christians were a cult. They were spreading this false idea of a resurrected Messiah. You know, it's amazing that this man could be so learned and so smart. And he was a brilliant man, Saul of Tarsus, but so blind spiritually. He read the Old Testament. He read all of the prophecies concerning the Messiah, but he was so blind to what they meant. He failed to recognize that the Messiah must first suffer and die and rise from the dead and then come in glory. He looked at Jesus as a dead figment of people's imagination. He wasn't the real Messiah. For the law said, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And Jesus died on a cross. Thus he was a curse to the Jewish nation. And though people were spreading the resurrection about Christ, he felt that he had to stop it. And so he went out. Every time that this man later, after he becomes Paul the Apostle to the Gentiles, every time he writes about his past life, he writes about it with great sorrow, great shame. He never says, let me tell you my testimony and some of the things I did to Christians to get people ooing and aahing during the testimony. He simply said, I was the chiefest of sinners because I persecuted the church of God. Great shame filled his heart as he recognized how blind he was to the truth. I look back at a period in my life when I was religious, I didn't know Christ, and whenever I saw somebody who was on fire for the Lord, I did not like them automatically. In fact, I sort of became their enemy automatically. And there's one particular incident that I look back with great shame concerning a French exchange student at my high school named Olivier. He'd come to our country. He had gotten saved. He was spreading the gospel around. And one night, I had a long heart-to-heart -heart talk with him. And I antagonized him. And I tried to intellectually assault him. And I told him he shouldn't be doing what he's doing. And a couple weeks later, he had backslidden and had taken my carnal advice and wasn't following the Lord anymore. And I look back at stuff like that with shame. I look back at my past with great sorrow. And I am so thankful for God's mercy. God didn't pick me because I'm a wonderful person. God picked me because I needed salvation. God picked me not because... I went to church, therefore he saw that I had the innate knowledge that he just knew that I was flat broke and he needed to get a hold of my life. Saul of Tarsus is chasing these Christians and notice it says in verse 2, men or women that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Verse 3 is the turning point. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. And he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
And he said, Who are you, Lord? It could be that he phrased it this way. Who are you? The Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, seeing no one. And Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. We go from his callousness to now his conversion. It's where the Lord gets a hold of his life. And he has a real, radical, close encounter of the spiritual kind with the Lord. God really got a hold of his life. And it wasn't just a dream, although God does speak through dreams. He spoke to Joseph and Jacob and others through dreams. It wasn't just a vision, although God has spoken through visions. It was an authentic God literally speaking to him in a real experience while he's flat on his back on the Damascus road. God got his attention. And how did he do it? He knocked him on his back. He knocked him flat on his back, got his attention, and he's just laying on the ground going, all right, what do you want? What else could he say? You know, there are some people that are so stubborn and they only listen well when they're flat on their backs. They don't listen to any other advice. They never listen. They're never in tune with God. But all of a sudden, a catastrophe happens and they're all ears. Lord, what would you like me to do? That's where Saul of Tarsus is now at. Who are you, Lord? Franklin Graham told me an interesting story about his dad. I kind of wonder if I should share it, but I'll go ahead. Just don't tell him I told you this. When Franklin and the kids were growing up and Billy Graham was starting to get known as a famous evangelist, you know, any time that a work of God spreads like that, you have crazy kooks that seek you out. And Billy Graham is... Uh, not without exception. And someone came to his door one day claiming to be Jesus Christ come in the flesh. And he ran up the driveway and started banging on the door of the house as loud as he could, demanding to see Billy Graham. And the kids were screaming. They were cringing behind the couches, crying. Well, when Billy Graham opened the door, the first thing he did is he punched the guy right in the nose. And the guy was sitting on the driveway and Billy Graham said, you get up again and I'll hit you again. And the man started weeping. He started crying and telling his life story and he started confessing his sin. And on the ground, after he punched him out, Billy Graham led him to Christ. And then Billy Graham said, now get out of here and never come back again. There are some people that just, just don't listen until they're flat on their back. They come with these great, grandiose plans and God has to get their attention. Now, I don't recommend that kind of evangelism very often. I wouldn't recommend you grab somebody by the scruff of their throat and try to do what God will do without you. This was God who got his attention. And God spoke to him. And he, and he changed his tune here. Notice the question in verse 4. He fell to the ground. He heard a voice say to him, Saul, 
Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. That threw this guy for a loop. He didn't believe Jesus was alive. The resurrection was myth as far as he was concerned. He was out to persecute people. People who claimed to believe in the Messiah, risen from the dead. People who were believers of Jesus. Jesus said, you are persecuting me. Notice how close Jesus identifies with his people. So much so that when you persecute a member of his body, you are touching him. Remember what Jesus or what God in the judgment day will say to the nations in Matthew 25. Inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. You see, God always identifies with his people. I love the story in the Old Testament. How the Assyrians are encamped around Jerusalem. and People in Jerusalem are shaking. They're wondering, are they going to be wiped out? And Shennacherib sends a guy by the name of Rabshakeh to deliver a message to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And you can picture them all sitting around the wall of Jerusalem, looking down in the valley where the armies of the Assyrians are perched. And this Rabshakeh reads a letter. And he says, don't trust in the words of Hezekiah, saying the Lord will deliver us. Because we're going to come back to this city and we're going to destroy you so bad that you will eat your own dung and drink your own urine and God won't be able to move a finger. And the people started getting a little bit worried. So much so that the leaders of Jerusalem said, hey, do us a favor. Don't speak in Hebrew so they can understand it. Speak in Chaldean. We can speak Chaldean. They said, listen, we have a message for all the people, not just you folks. They're trying to psychologically deteriorate their position. Hezekiah hears about it and he takes it to God and he starts weeping. Oh God, do something. Isaiah comes to him and says, hey, don't worry. God will deal with these folks. They have come against you. You are serving the Lord. Your heart is right before God. God will take care of them. The scripture records that the next morning, an angel of the Lord the night before had gone through the camp of the Assyrians and killed 185,000 Assyrians. So that when they went up the next morning and looked out in the valley, there were all corpses of dead Assyrians. 185,000. Whenever you are doing God's will, God's way, and somebody opposes you, they got God to hassle with. God takes personal offense to anyone who comes against God's anointed doing His will in His way. Which should cause us who are Christians to think twice before we off the cuff criticize another member of the body of Christ. Because if that person is doing God's work, God's way, God's will, and you're opposing Him, you're touching Christ. You're persecuting Christ. I'm saying that, number one, so that we won't just off the cuff be quick to judge. Be quick to pass a judgment on another brother or sister in the body of Christ because we don't know all the facts. But secondly, there are times... When somebody who is in the body of Christ, even a leader, must be confronted 
And the balance to this truth is that a Christian who loves must confront that person. And if, you see, there's people that wave this banner. Touch not the Lord's anointed. What they mean by that is that if there's people, even teaching false doctrine, even doing stupid, disobedient things, you have no right to say anything because you're touching God's anointed. Well, if they're doing that, they ought to be touched. If they're doing God's will, God's way, don't hassle them. If they're not, if they're breeding false doctrine, heresy, disobedient behavior, and causing the standard of the gospel to go down, they need to be confronted. In fact, the Bible commands that you go to a brother and you tell him his sin if he has offended you or if he's offended the Lord for accountability's sake. If he listens to you, great. If he doesn't, take someone else with you. If they don't listen, tell it to the church. If they don't listen to the church, they will be to you, Jesus said, as a heathen and a tax collector. Now, how can you do that with passing, without passing some sort of evaluation or discernment? In fact, in the New Testament, Paul the Apostle confronted those publicly by name. He named their names publicly. He said, Alexander the coppersmith hath done me much harm. May God reward him according to his works. That was a public speech in the letter that he gave. In another place, Paul the Apostle said, their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort, who strayed concerning the truth. Some having rejected concerning the faith have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Heavy words. Words of rebuke. Now some will say, well that's not very loving. Listen to what Jesus Christ himself said. As many as I love, I rebuke and I chasten. Revelation chapter 3. As many as I love, I rebuke and I chasten. So we have a responsibility not to pass judgment against those doing God's work, God's way, lest we come into the same category as Saul of Tarsus. But number two, to have the responsibility to love someone enough to confront them if they're not. And that's also as biblical. Now you'd be saying, yeah, but the Bible says, judge not lest you be judged. Well, let me tell you what that does not mean. That does not mean that a Christian cannot hold a biblical evaluation for someone else who is practicing or teaching a certain doctrine. It's not what it's saying at all. It means censorious judgment that would cut off a person from Christ. We don't have the right. We don't know the motivation. But later on, Jesus said, don't cast your pearls before pigs. Now, if you can't evaluate a person and pass judgment, how will you know who is a pig and who's not? You have to think and use discernment to discover who is swine and who's not. Those are Jesus' words. Further on down in the same chapter, Jesus said, beware of false prophets. You'll know them by their fruits. Well, if you don't think to discern and evaluate the fruit, you won't be able to obey the command of Christ. And then turning over to the Gospel of John, Jesus said, judge you a righteous judgment. I want you to judge, just make sure it's righteous, it's accurate, it's according to Scripture. Don't be passing judgment out and sharing your opinions with people when they're doing God's work God's way. You make sure it's righteous. Don't criticize and condemn without knowing all the facts. But if there's false prophets and there's swine and there's dogs, as in Matthew 7, 
You must make an intelligent and spiritual evaluation. And you must love them enough to confront them if they're in error. Now in verse 6, he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what do you want me to do? I like that. Notice his first question. The first question in verse 5 is, who are you, Lord? But the second question is, who do you want me to do? Now that second question signifies true conversion. A lot of times people want to stop at the first question. Who are you, Lord? Being ignorant of God, they get all excited once they discover the true and living God. But that's great. But they stop there. Real conversion is when you say, now that I've discovered who you are, Lord, now what do you want me to do? True conversion is when there's change and you offer your life as a living sacrifice to God and He's controlling you. You're not just cramming your head full of head knowledge and you've discovered who Jesus really is and you're learning about Him and going through Bible study, but you come to a place where you say, Lord, what do you want me to do? And that's a question you and I ought to ask every day. Lord, what do you want me to do today? My life is yours. What plan do you have for me? You're coming soon. What can I do for you? He's in charge. One person said, faith that has not changed your life has not saved your soul. Lord, what do you want me to do? Here's my life, a living sacrifice. Now keep your finger here and turn over to Philippians 3. And let's look at Paul as he reflects on this incident some 30 years later. He's writing to the church of Philippi, but notice how he describes his conversion. Philippians chapter 3. He says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it's safe. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. Those are the Judaizers who were telling them to live in a legalistic way. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks that he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning righteousness, which is in the law, I was blameless. Now that's Paul's past life. He's describing his Jewish pedigree. He's telling you all of the advantages that he had in the physical and religious world before he came to know Christ. Basically, he's saying, I grew up in a religious home. I had the best education. I was morally upright. I was very religious. With that in mind, he says in verse 7, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. But indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, literally dung, that I might gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Paul is saying, all that was dear to me up to the point of the Damascus Road, 
All of my pedigree, all of my background, my religious learning, my intellectual knowledge, my family upbringing, my tribal allotment, all of those things that were advantageous to me, I tossed them out the window. I was willing to surrender all of those things that I held so dear to myself that I might gain Christ and be found in Him not having my own righteousness. I surrender. I love what Augustine once wrote. He said, what I feared to be parted from was now a joy to surrender. Paul's flat on his back. All those things that were dear to him, he said, I surrender, Lord. Who are you, Lord? What do you want me to do? I give you my life. I know people that are afraid to come to Jesus Christ because they don't know what's going to happen. I'm going to be different if I come to Christ. Yeah, you sure will. I'm afraid I'll change. I might turn out weird. Well, chances are, if you do, it's because you already were before you came to Christ. He's not responsible for that part. We shouldn't blame him for that. You will change, but when you come to that point where you recognize who he is and you say, what do you want me to do? And you finally surrender. It becomes a joy because of what you gain. Now, what Paul gave up, his religious background, his family upbringing, all of his schooling in Judaism at the feet of Gamaliel and in Tarsus, those weren't bad things. Those weren't evil in and of themselves. But there's an important principle we have shared here over and over again. This is it. That which is good, even though it is good, if a good thing keeps you from the best thing, it becomes an evil thing. If your religion, if your intellect, if your relationships keep you from a vital relationship with Jesus Christ, even though innately they are good, they have become evil. Because they're substituting for a relationship with God. I don't want to come to Christ. I don't need to. I'm religious. I'm afraid if I come to Christ, my family will reject me. I'm afraid my friends will reject me. Those friends, those family, that background, those are good. But they now have become evil because they've kept you from God's will. Paul said, I was willing to surrender all of them. Even a man's religion can damn his soul forever. If it is used as a substitute for the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. And that has happened time and time again for many people. What is significant before we move on is where Paul says in verse 7, what things were gain, past tense, these things I have counted loss for Christ. That's a past tense decision that Paul made 30 years from the time this letter was written. He's saying 30 years ago I made a choice to follow Christ. Verse 8, but indeed I also count, that's present tense, all things lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. In other words, 30 years of water under the bridge, I am not sorry for the choice I have made. I don't want to go back to the world. I don't want to go back to that which hindered me from Christ, my religious background, my family upbringing, all of those things. I don't want to trade Christ for that. I made a choice and I'm sticking with it. And I'm not sorry for the choice I made. Now back to the book of Acts. We have seen his callousness. We have seen Paul's conversion. Now let's look at his calling. It says, verse 8, Saul arose from the ground 
And his eyes were opened. He could see no one, blind as a bat. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. He was there three days without sight, and he neither ate nor he drank. I believe he was in a state of absolute shock. He was stunned, like a person who'd been in an automobile accident. It hasn't quite set in yet. What has happened? Jesus Christ just spoke to him. He didn't even believe in him. He didn't believe he was alive, and Jesus actually spoke to him. He knew his name. No doubt he is just thinking back to all of his own personal experiences, all that he learned about Judaism, the history of the Jews, the promise of the Messiah, wondering about what had happened. These were revolutionary days for Saul of Tarsus as he recounted his history. And then in verse 10, the turning point. There was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias... And he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said, Arise and go to the street called Straight, which is like Main Street or Central Avenue, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. Isn't that a beautiful description of Saul of Tarsus? He describes to Ananias Saul as being one who is praying. The reason I draw your attention to that is because this guy was a Jew. He grew up praying. He prayed many times through his life. He was zealous. He was orthodox. He was a Pharisee. That means he prayed three times every day, at least. Nine in the morning, twelve noon, and three p.m. Every day he said the Shema in Hebrew. Shema Israel. And then every day he said the Shmonestre, the 18 prayers of worship and dedication to God. He was a man who prayed. He was used to prayer. And yet, it's as if God is implying that all that happened in his life previous, in his prayer life, really wasn't prayer. Now he's praying. It could be that these, this person, Saul of Tarsus, was one of those Jews that Jesus referred to in Matthew 7. He was living at that time. He was a Pharisee, and Jesus said, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, who love to pray standing in the synagogue and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Verily I say to you, they already have their reward. And what these Pharisees would do, would pray out loud. But they would wait till the crowds were thick in the city of Jerusalem. They didn't want to do it alone in the closet like Jesus said to do. They wanted to do it on stage. So they would wait for a very spiritual time to pray, like 12 o'clock noon. It'd be like standing out here on San Mateo and Manal, And at 12 o'clock noon, the Pharisees come out because they know people are going to be hopping in their cars and going to eat lunch at Burger King and Taco Bell. And so the traffic starts getting thick and there's a traffic jam at the street corner and the Pharisees put their hands up. Hallelujah, Lord, we love you, we thank you. And people drive by go, wow, those guys love God. They are spiritual folks. Look at the display that they're making for us. Paul always prayed. I should say Saul of Tarsus always prayed. But now God says, Ananias, I want you to go to this guy. He's praying now. That's his description. He really means it now. You see, it's possible to pray and yet not really pray to God. You can pray for effect. You can pray so that other people will think, ooh, pretty good. 
eloquent prayer. And people will say, that's gorgeous, that's beautiful. And God's going, can't hear a thing you're saying. Because God looks at the heart. And you see, there's another important principle here. The first prayer God will ever hear you pray is, Lord Jesus, be my Savior. I know many people who say, I pray all the time. So what? If you're not a Christian, he doesn't hear you. Oh, he hears you, but he doesn't answer. You say, is that biblical? You betcha. David said, if I have sin in my heart, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Through the prophet Isaiah, God said, my ear is not heavy that I cannot hear. My hand is not short that it cannot save. But your sins have separated from you and your God. Sin creates a barrier. And you can't just arbitrarily pray to God when you're in a jam and expect God to bail you out. Your life must be committed to Christ first. You have to be His child. Behold, He is praying. And now He goes to Him. And in verse 13, Ananias answered. I love his uh, a little argument here. Lord, I, I have heard many things about this man. How much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. Lord, you, you got the right address? You sure you want me, little old Ananias? I'm not anything big. To go to Saul of Tarsus? He's a terrorist. He kills people like me who try to upset him. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all those who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, the kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Now before we cover those verses, let's read on. Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, probably they were shaking a little bit at this point, He said, Brother Saul, and I'm sure he probably asked that in, in a kind of a question. Brother Saul? The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road, as you came, he has sent me that you might receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once. He arose and was baptized. And when he had received food, he was strengthened. And Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Now, back in verse 15 and 16 is a summary of the life and ministry of Paul the Apostle. When he was transformed from Saul of Tarsus to the great apostle of the Gentiles, in a little nutshell before that event, as he was transformed, God gave him an, gave him an encapsulated kind of a message, what he could expect. And the things that he says about Paul's life can apply to you and me. First of all, notice, God says, I have picked Saul. The Lord said to him, go for he is a chosen vessel of mine. He was picked by God. And that word chosen vessel of mine literally means I have selected him for myself. Isn't that amazing? The greatest enemy of the church God picked to be on his team to be on the same team with Moses and Elijah and Peter and his own son, Jesus Christ. I remember when I was in high school and they used to pick teams for sports. I absolutely hated that moment because I wasn't picked first. 
And nobody likes to be picked last. And oftentimes, I was picked last. And so they'd pick teams, and I'd always try to suck air in to make my chest look big and look real rough. But, you know, I still had bird legs, so they never picked me. And you know you're hurting when they pick a girl before they pick you on an all-male football team. God came along and says, I have picked Saul. God has chosen you for his team. You're on God's team. If you're a Christian tonight, God has chosen you. Question, when did God choose you? Was it after you proved you were worthy to be chosen? When you showed team spirit, spiritual athletic ability, that you could run the race, that you would love the Lord? So he said, you know, I see potential in you, kid. I'm going to choose you. Now, the Bible says while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And the book of Ephesians, listen to this. Paul the Apostle says he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Before you were born, he picked you for his team. To Jeremiah, God said, I formed you in the womb. Before I formed you, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you and I ordained you as a prophet to the nations. Charles Spurgeon used to say, I'm glad God chose me before I was born, because if he would have waited till after, he wouldn't have chosen me. But that's not the truth. God knew all about you, and he still chose you. That's the amazing thing. Was it because God knew that when he chose you, it would be a good choice? Is that why he picked you? Did he look at your life and say, you know, this person here, he's going to be in the ministry. And he's kind of special. And he's going to speak to crowds. No, you know what? You want to tell, let me tell you why God chose me. Because God wanted to demonstrate his grace, his unmerited favor. And he figured I'd be the best candidate to display unmerited favor. He thought, you know, people are going to look at this kid and think, it's got to be God. I wouldn't want him on my team. So that God would get the glory. God has chosen the foolish things of this world to put to shame the wise, he says in 1 Corinthians. You know, we think of Paul the Apostle as this perfect specimen of humanity and spirituality. Now, he was a spiritual man. He went for gusto. He was devoted. He wasn't perfect. There was no aura about him. How do you picture Paul in your mind? Do you picture this stately guy, tall, good-looking, with a beard and flowing hair? One of the historians, and it's believed to be accurate, wrote a description, a physical description of Paul the Apostle. He said, quote, he was a man of moderate stature, with curly hair, scanty, crooked legs, protruding eyeballs, large knit eyebrows, a long nose, and thick lips. He was a circus attraction. (laughs) Paul the Apostle made reference to that. He said, physically in appearance, I am weak. When I come, I'll come not, not with a demonstration of the flesh and words, but the power of the Holy Spirit. He wasn't any great thing to look upon. He wasn't any great pick. God figured he would be the best demonstration of his grace. He was an antagonist against the church. Listen, this is great news. No one is out of reach for God. I know that you know people, probably your own relatives, that you think, even God can't reach that guy. Baloney. 
Saul proves that if God can get a hold of him, he can change anybody. And you ought to have that kind of faith and consider Paul the Apostle when you pray for your relatives. Then God says he will be an instrument of mine. He says, to bear my name before the Gentiles, the kings, and the children of Israel. That word means vessel. What is a vessel? An instrument to do work. God is looking for vessels. God is looking for people to do his work. I believe very strongly in what I call layman's liberation. That all of you in this room, if you're a believer, God has given you a ministry. Some of you are functioning in that, and many of you are not. But God is looking for a vessel to do His work in this world. His work, not your work, not your ambitions, not your career, but to use you in your career for His glory. And I ask you tonight, have you discovered your gifts? Are you functioning the way God would have you function to reach others in this world for Christ? Are you a chosen vessel of God doing His work? You know, you notice that basically in your home you have two types of vessels, two types of pots. You have those kind that you use for cooking every day. Those are the useful utensils. Those are vessels that you do your work with. Then you have decorative pots. They do nothing but look nice and collect dust. Are we like that? Are we soaking in all of the truth but not letting it flow out? And we're like that pot sitting on the shelf. Oh, it could be used as well as the stuff that you cook with every day. It's just not being used. And it's all up to us. God has chosen us. He wants to make us a vessel to do His work. And then one final promise for His life, verse 16, He will suffer. I will show Him how many things He must suffer for my namesake. Now, that was the message Ananias had to give to Saul. That's not the greatest thing to tell a terrorist who kills Christians. Saul, thus saith the Lord, you're going to suffer for the name of Christ. That took faith for Ananias to go and share that. But the fact is, Saul did suffer. He wrote about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Philippians, the whole book. He said, those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. If you are fully dedicated to the Lord in some capacity, you suffer. If you are not fully dedicated to the Lord, you escape that kind of suffering. doesn't mean you'll get beat up. You might. It does mean that you will suffer something for bearing His name, some kind of antagonism, some kind of persecution, some kind of hatred from the world towards you. Saul was a member of the Sanhedrin, which meant he was very well off, he was very wealthy, he had esteem in Jerusalem. All of those things, he could have just said, you know what, uh, I'm just going to stay right where I'm at. But because he chose to follow Jesus completely, he suffered. But he said, I've counted all things lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. How about us? I'm not saying you should count all of your war wounds. But Amy Carmichael, in one little poem, posed a question. She said, Hast thou no scar? And at the end of the poem, she simply wrote, He could not have traveled far who has no wound or scar. If you follow the Lord, you suffer some kind of consequence. You give up some kind of freedom. But you bear the greatest bulk of joy to be a chosen vessel of God 
Surely if the chief of sinners, as Paul called himself, could be reached by God, anybody can. No one is beyond his reach. Your relatives, your friends, the people you've been praying for, you think they're just goners. God can get a hold of them. Don't give up. Keep praying for them. Let's pray. Father, thank You for being able to witness this great transformation. A man who is an antagonist and an enemy. An enemy of Christ and antichrist in a very real sense. Becoming a lover of Christ. Writing a great bulk of the New Testament. From Saul of Tarsus to Paul the Apostle. Not only the change you made in his life saving him, but the change you made in his life using him for your glory. To take the gospel, to bear your name to kings, Gentiles. Thank you, Lord, for Saul's, for Paul's passion. And how, Lord, that speaks to us and, yes, even convicts us. And, Father, we would pray tonight, too, for anyone who would be among us, who tonight perhaps has not come to the Lord and given you charge. They've asked the question, who is God? And some have even felt they've come close to the answer. But they've never come to a place where they've come directly to you and said, what do you want me to do, Lord? Be in charge. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to their hearts, that they might come to know you. 